when Tyler asked me what do you want to talk about, it was, it was an automatic response. I knew exactly what I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about how medics, EMTs, paramedics, how we perform under pressure when the calls get really wicked. Welcome to Medic Mindset. I'm Ginger Locke. In this episode, I want to share a lecture from the Wisconsin EMS Conference in January of 2018. The talk is called When Things Get Wicked, and it's about human performance under pressure. This was my first lecture at a conference, and I thank my friend Tyler Christofoli for inviting me to speak on my favorite topic. Tyler and the other members of the Wisconsin EMS Association put on a spectacular conference. Since this is the audio-only version, I'll send you to MedicMindset.com where you can find the accompanying slides and a video that was broadcast live on Facebook by my friends at Foam Frat. I'm happy to share this with you, and I hope you find it useful. Good morning. First, I want to thank Tyler Christofoli. Can you all hear me okay? Yep. Uh, Mark Cohen, Fred Hornby for inviting me to speak. And the next thing I want to do is, is something that when I was preparing the lecture, I was making notes in a little journal that I keep, and I wrote the word smile. I wrote pause and smile. Um, and my eight-year-old daughter came across my notes and she, she, it became kind of a household joke over the last couple of weeks of smile. And the reason I wrote that in is because I wanted to remind myself of how I, how I really feel about being here. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm thankful to be here. I love this content. It's something I spend a ton of time thinking about and talking about and talking with medics about. Um, but I knew in this moment, standing right here, looking at your faces, I knew it was going to feel a little wicked. I knew no matter what, no matter how much I prepared, no matter how much I love it, how fluent I am in this topic, there's something about public speaking. It's, who knows what it is, it's primal, it's intrinsic. We stand here and we get this feeling. And... You've probably felt this feeling too. You may not have done public speaking, but it's kind of this stress response, right? But, and you're going to hear me say this a couple of times in this talk. Don't believe everything you feel. Don't believe everything you feel. It's just a feeling. It's, it's, some of it's automatic. It's primal. It's instinctual. It rushes over you. You, you can't deny it. But what you can do in that little moment is insert something else on purpose. You can purposely um, change the script, okay? And that's what we're going to talk some about today. When Tyler asked me, what do you want to talk about? It was, it was an automatic response. I knew exactly what I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about how medics, EMTs, paramedics, how we perform under pressure when the calls get really wicked. And so when I think about how I came to be standing right here in front of all you guys, uh, all the way from Austin, Texas to Milwaukee. I've never been to Milwaukee, I've never been to Wisconsin, but how did I end up right here? I actually connect, connect some dots that go all the way back to 1991. Uh, I was a teenager in Athens, Georgia, and the um, Atlanta Braves had a pitcher named John Smoltz, and John Smoltz went on to become a Cy Young Award winner. He's an eight-time All-Star baseball player. He's a pitcher. Um, high-performing pitcher, but in 91, he was struggling. He was brand new. 
He was in his early 20s, and he didn't have um, the psychology of an athlete. And I remember my mom telling me that the Atlanta Braves hired him a sports psychologist. And as a teenager, that didn't make sense to me. To me, athletes were physical beings, right? They're physical beings, that they just perfect their craft. And how in the world could someone, a psychologist, help them perform better? So it planted a seed that's really grown. And in, in my practice as a, a paramedic, I would played college sports and I developed some of these coping skills that we're going to talk about today. And things, there were certainly occasional hiccups, but performance wasn't a huge struggle for me. But when I started teaching, I had these students who did struggle. And I had a pr presumption when I first started teaching that some of you may have right now, but I hope you don't when you leave today. I had a, a wrong assumption that some people were cut out for emergency medicine, some people were cut out to respond to emergencies, and then others weren't, as if it were some intrinsic ability. Um, and that's just not the case. We're not born, we're not hardwired uh, with these intrinsic qualities. There are, they are skills that you can learn. And so when I, when I first started teaching, some students would come in, these are adults, I teach uh, at a community college, they walk in, some of them had some type of um, performance coaching at some point. Maybe it was a coach who taught them how to shoot free throws under pressure. Maybe it was um, a musician or someone that went to recitals and they um, had to figure out how to be on stage and modulate their arousal. And then other ones came to us who had never had those experiences before, so they hadn't picked up these tricks and tactics. So what I want you to, to appreciate is that you can, absolutely, these are learnable skills, and that you should communicate to anybody that's new to the profession, if you're a, a training officer, um, if you're an educator, and we're all kind of training each other. So when you're out there um, taking care of, especially the new guys, please appreciate that these are skills that they can learn, and that's what we're gonna talk about today. A lot of my students know that I'm interested in this topic, and one of them sent me a phenomenal video by a gentleman named Michael Loria. Uh, Michael Loria is one of the greatest minds of emergency medicine. He's a pararescueman who uh, went on to be a paramedic, and now he's in med school. And he is working very hard. He's leading from the front to bring all the lessons learned from the military, all the things, all the things they've done to learn how to perform under stress, and he's trying to bring it to medicine. And so it was really uh, a video that I saw called Cognitive Paths Through Chaos. It's like, how do you think in the chaos? And from there, I launched a pretty deep research and found two other really great resources that, that you'll have access to. I'm uploading all these notes and everything. Anything, anybody's name I mention or any, any paper that I refer to, you'll be able to find it at medicmindset.com. So um, you can just fully relax, enjoy, listen right now and not feel like you have to furiously write any notes. I'm sure you're furiously writing notes, right? <laughs> I came across a gentleman named uh, Justin Morgenstern. He wrote the best article. It's the best article that you can find anywhere, and it's free. It's actually, to me, one of the best articles for emergency medicine. There are plenty of people, performance psychologists, who are talking about this with athletes um, and in the military and musicians, but we're finally starting to see it pop up in medicine and emergency medicine. So there's Justin Morgenstern, and there's another gentleman uh, named Jason Brooks, and he is a strict performance psychologist who is now uh, bringing this to medicine, so thank you to both of them. A little bit about the format of this talk. 
you can see I haven't even advanced one slide. It's not slide heavy. You're not going to have a ton to read on the slides. We'll do some pictures, but a lot of it's just me talking. And that's, that's on purpose. It's designed to allow you to kind of start, as we're talking, reflecting on what, what you're hearing and think about practicing the skill right here in this moment and, and reflect on how you've done that or how you could do it in the future. Okay, so there's a little bit of space here um, to allow you to reflect on what you're, what you're seeing. The things I'm going to talk about, we will certainly, I will share anecdotes, right, stories. Because uh, I've talked to a lot of medics from the podcast. Um, I've talked to a lot of medics about how they do their craft. So we're going to hear stories, but I also want you to know that there is evidence to support. Any of the suggestions that you hear today in this room is it's supported with evidence. This is um, a paper that just got published December 2017 in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. Michael Loria is the, the lead author, and then you see maybe some other familiar names like Scott Weingart and Jason Brooks, who I told you is the performance psychologist. This is uh, peer-reviewed, published, and they outline four skills four things you can do under pressure to perform better. And most of it is about controlling your arousal state, how kind of hyper-aroused you are. Uh, he, he lists four things and backs them with science. He lists breathing techniques, positive self-talk, visualization, and then he emphasizes this idea of using a trigger word, something to help you focus uh, in a moment. And we'll expand on all of that. So what is wicked? People have been calling this the wicked talk. Uh, what is wicked? Wicked is a, a, a word I use instead of using the word distress. So stress can be positive. Stress is probably what got me here today. A little bit of stress. When the alarm went off, I got up, right? A little bit of stress. That's called eustress, E-U stress. It's positive. It's motivating. It springs us into action. And we perform well under eustress, positive stress. Distress, on the other hand, uh, what, I call, what I'm calling wicked, is when we're so alert, we're so um, overloaded that performance fails. And wicked is a term I, I first heard Dr. Pat Crosker use. He's a Canadian emergency medicine physician. And he's published 70 articles, 30 chapters on the topic of clinical decision making. And what he says is there's certain environments environments like emergency medicine where it's really difficult to make clinical decisions because of the things you've, you know, you know it well. It's uh, being fatigued, it's being uh, in extreme environments, cramped spaces, um, emotional, high emotion calls, okay, this is the wicked. There are three things that are really common, three kind of conditions that make your brain register distress, register wicked. The first is you have to care about the outcome. Okay? If you don't care how it all ends, it, it doesn't matter, right? We don't, we don't get distressed. That one to me is an automatic check in EMS. We already got that, okay? We always care about the patient outcome. We care about how we are performing as a team member. It's automatic. It's there in EMS. The second one is new things, novel things are distressing to humans, okay? When we don't have a pattern for it, uh, we get a little stressed. And then the third thing, and I'm going to talk more about the new. The third thing is when we've apprised the situation, when we've evaluated it, and most of this evaluation is subconscious. We walk in and we think, do I have the resources to meet the needs of this situation? And it's a really quick appraisal that you make. It's, it's almost automatic. 
We'll talk more about that too. First, I want to talk about why new things are stressful. It's because our biology moves slowly. The current version of human, of Homo sapien, you guys know how long we've been around, Homo sapiens? It's estimated, there's various theories, but up to 200,000 years, we've been our current version. So your operating system, the one you're currently working with, is really, really old. And if you were to think about those 200,000 years as a 500-page book, I heard this in a podcast, and to me it's a perfect visual reference. This is a a perfect 500-page book. I looked through all my books and found the 500-page one. It's split to page 475. On page 475, okay, imagine you're from, you're from the future or you're an alien, you're reading about us. Page 100, we're hunter and gatherers. Page 200, we're still hunting and gathering. We're living uh, primitively, we're interacting with nature, there's animals, right, that we're encountering. Page 300, still hunting and gathering. We're foraging, hunting and gathering. Page 400, still hunting and gathering. You have to get to page 475 before we're even planting crops. Okay. It's page 490-something before we're even forming civilizations and forming cities. Okay. So this current environment that we're operating in is kind of brand new, and we're primed for the older stuff. The oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear. And the oldest and strongest kind of fear is the fear of the unknown. When something 200 years ago walked into your camp, if, if you'd never seen it before, we, we thought... Use caution, this is dangerous, okay? And you still have those reflexes. The third thing that was on our list are resources compared to the demands. And this is called a threat assessment or a, a threat challenge appraisal. And it's, it's really simple, really straightforward. You, you look at the situation and you say, do I have the, what it takes? Do I have the abilities or the resources around me to manage the demands of this situation? It's just those two variables. If you don't, if you don't have adequate resources to manage the demands, that, that is called a threat, threat, threat analysis and it triggers a stress response. Think of the other one. Think of the one where you do have the, the resources to meet the demands. We call that a challenge and that's playtime. That's fun call. It's like, okay, this is a cardiac arrest. I've run this scenario 200 times in the last month. I'm ready. Let's play, let's see how good we can do. That's challenge and people really perform well under that scenario. When they perceive that they, they do not have the resources to meet the demands, they call that a threat and it's distressing. And what, what gets triggered in the stress response is when I say it gets triggered, what I'm talking about is this hypothalamus pituitary gland adrenal axis response. And it's, it's strong, you know it. Everyone in this room knows it. It's increased heart rate. Sometimes you can even feel the strength of the contractions, pounding. It's narrowed field of vision. It's something called auditory exclusion. We, we stop being able to hear all the information coming into us. We, hearing goes. Loss of fine motor control. Tremors. And this is all because of the stress response, this is because of epi and norepi and cortisol. Oh, cortisol, we're going to talk about you. Cortisol is not your friend. This is a little graph I made to, to compare arousal to performance. And it's something I borrowed from Justin Morgenstern. This is my own version. 
But if you look at the arousal state at the bottom, you've got bored, which is black. When you're bored, when you're under aroused, that's actually, you also perform poorly in that environment too. And you, I was tempted to say emergency medicine, we're not gonna be here. But actually, sometimes we are. On the routine transfers, on the patient you've seen a lot and you feel like you know them and you know what to expect, you kind of get routine uh, response. You can be so bored and so under aroused that you can get it behind a little bit on those calls, right? The ideal place, uh, space to be is what we call flow or your happy place. This is positive stress. This is when you're kind of medium arousal state. You feel like you've got the resources to meet the demands and you perform well. The other place where performance drops off is this, this stress or over aroused state. The cortisol that's released, the one that I mentioned, it gets released here in the stress. If you can avoid the red zone, avoid the exposure of, to, of cortisol, cortisol bathes the prefrontal cortex, it bathes the amygdala, the hippocampus, and it can, it can create some permanent changes in the brain, some lasting ones. So not only does it, is this stress response affecting you in that moment, but it's also putting you at risk for mental health problems down the line. So let's talk about what to do. You, we, I think we've, we've said the problem. <laughs> now let's talk about what you can do in these moments. The first one I'm using is self-talk. It sounds hokey. Okay, I'm, I will be the first to say that a little bit of cynicism here is appropriate, okay? But psychologists refer to self-talk as the key to cognitive control. It's the key. Because if you can insert a, can insert a script that's truthful, you can wash away the, all those untruthful feelings that just kind of wash over you. This is what John Smoltz did. What the sports psychologist did with him is he said, hey, talk to me about how you're preparing. When you're, when you're up there and ready to pitch, what are you thinking to yourself? What are you saying to yourself? And in the early 90s, before he went on to win the World Series, the things he was saying to himself was like, I, want, I don't want to pitch it down and inside. He was using negative visualizations about what he didn't want to do. And so that small tweak, that, I'm sure there were more, more tweaks than that, but that's the one he's talked about in interviews. That small tweak where he started instead positively visualizing, saying to himself, I want it to go and insert wherever he wanted it to go. And I've observed this, again, this is anecdotal, but it's also supported by, by evidence. Another story is that I observed this, uh, some friends of mine are on the SWAT team and they, and they know that I'm interested in this topic. So they invited me to get to watch one of their stress inoculation exercises. Live fire, stressful environment. Even for me, just being there. And I watched this one medic, before he went into his exercise, he said out loud, he, he didn't, not, they didn't know I was there, I was just observing. And he stood there and he said, calm, confident mind. He said it out loud right before he did his, his evolution, right before he did his stress inoculation. Calm, confident mind. And I interviewed him afterwards. I said, hey, Drew, what was that? <laughs> what were you doing? And he said, that's something I do. I'm a, he does extreme sports. Also, he does rock climbing. Um, and that's something to point out about these skills. This, these are transferable skills. It, whatever you've practiced in sports or athletics or public speaking, it transfers um, it, into many environments. This is just about controlling arousal, so it doesn't really matter where, where that's happening. He said, yeah, this is just something I've done through the years. 
uh, it, it calms me down. And it's important. Here's the, here's the piece that makes it not hokey. The affirmations, even the word affirmations makes people giggle. Affirmations need to be truthful. They need to be truthful and positive. So you can say things like, I've prepared for this type of call. Or, I've studied a lot of EKGs. I'm ready for this. Or, I know the rules of EKGs. So put yourself on a tough call. You've got sweaty, heavy breathing, suspected MI right in front of you. You're the first one there. You're alone. Resources are low. The spouse is there. They're upset. Imagine, this is the reflection I was hoping for you to get in this by going slowly through this talk. Put yourself there. Someone hands you an EKG or someone hands you a, a list of meds. Something you've got to interpret and someone's expecting you to understand what's being put in front of you. That's a moment where you can say, I know EKGs, let me see what we've got. Okay? Instead of, oh God, what is on here? All right. So positive, truthful affirmations. This is what Mike Loria, Michael Loria says. These are the guidelines in his papers about what, how this speech should, should be, uh, the conditions that you should speak. First, you should keep the, the phrases short. First person and present tense. They should be positive. And not just affirming like, I'm good, I'm smart. Positive, like what the desired outcome, the, the positive outcome that you want at the end. And to say it with intention, you have to believe it. Because think about it, when I first got up here to speak, I could have just been believing this feeling that I was feeling, this stressed feeling. But I just reminded myself, I know this stuff. I want to share this stuff. Okay, so you insert a different script. Speak kindly to yourself and repeat often. The affirmation, the mantra that you come up with, and I hope you will come up with with some that work for you, you should repeat them often in training on low-stress calls. So when the high-stress call comes, you're ready. It won't work if you just insert it. In the, in the wicked environments. So lots of practice. Chris Hicks must have known this talk was coming. On, on January 19th, he tweeted what his mantra is. And I was so thrilled. I, I saw that and I thought, great, they'll believe me that this is, this is real. They won't think Ginger's just up here talking about affirmations. Chris Hicks says, he's an emergency medicine physician uh, in, in Canada. He says what he says, and this is genius. He says, but when something rolls in, it's tough. He says out to himself, but he also says it out loud to your team. And that's an important piece, that this is self-talk, but if you're leading a team, it's important to also say it out loud, okay, to help others uh, cognitively reframe their experience. And he says, this is a challenge. It's like, he, it's like he goes straight to the heart of the matter where we're doing this threat versus challenge analysis, and he says what it is. He's not going to let that feeling just come over him when he decides subconsciously this is a threat. He defines it. He says, this is a challenge. Takes a breath. Have at it. Ashley Liebig, she says that hers is a fist bump and just a simple, we got this. And in those three words, she's saying, we've prepared for this. We have all the resources. We've got the training. We're ready. Swami Nathan, he says, this is just simple. We can do this. Let's get to work. And once you get to work, things usually settle down, right? Once you start picking through these, these calls one little step at a time, you start realizing, all right, we're making some, some, some way here. But it's the beginning. It's the, I've talked to so many medics that say after dispatch, 
to arriving at the call is when the biggest mind freak time is. And it's because you haven't had the ability to know what you're about to see. You haven't had the chance to know if your resources meet the demand. So that, that time when you're in route is a really critical time. Use self-talk during this time. Tell yourself, I'm prepared. That's Michael Phelps. He doesn't have a performance psychologist, but he has a really, really good coach. And his coach uses uh, the tools of, of performance psychology, and he's been interviewed about them. Both the coach and, and Michael Phelps have, have been interviewed. Breathing, breathing control is probably the easiest skill that you can take away today. It's easy. It's the, the immediately actionable tool, the very next call you run, you get dispatched, you're going to the call, you can control breathing. There's a, a bi-directional relationship between breathing and your emotional state. And you, and you know this because you've had anxious patients and they breathe fast, right? The opposite also goes, it's bi-directional. And so your breathing can control your emotions. And there are various techniques on how to, to do this performance breathing or this kind of calming breathing. It has a host of different names. But the point is that you notice your breathing starts getting a little fast, and you control it. And that control, controlling your own physiology, helps to bring back some of that locus of control back to yourself. And you see this, on, you see this in sports, the field goal kicker. Every single time, what happens? You, you see them line up, you see their shoulder pads go up and down. They take a little breath, right? <clears throat> you can do this too. It's got, this, is, this is box breathing or square breathing. This is one uh, recommended way to do it, but there's all kinds. There's yoga breathing and meditation breathing and sexy breathing is what, what one friend called it. <laughs> the idea is about noticing your breathing and controlling it. This is square breathing. So you inhale for four seconds. This doesn't work for me, by the way. This is not how I do it. I have a completely different way of, of breathing. Uh, so if it doesn't, the timing doesn't work for you, Find your own, okay? Inhale for four seconds. And this was my diagram. Is I purposely didn't put hold for four seconds because that's the piece that doesn't work for me. But you hold it for a period of time. Exhale for four seconds. And then at the end of exhalation, hold it out for another four seconds. And you only have to do it a couple of times. It's not like we're doing this the whole time, okay? Just a couple of good um, washing breaths. Again, this takes practice. This is ancient wisdom. We've known this for a long time. This has been part of uh, martial arts and meditation for a very, very long time. And Michael Loria, in his paper, references a randomized control trial. So now we've got some evidence supporting this, that breathing can be used to control anxiety and PTSD patients. This is another, another tool that you can use called the pause play button. And this is a recommendation from just about every medic I've ever talked to. I said, hey, when things go off the rails in your calls, what do you do? And without fail, they almost all said, I kind of just, I do a stop, let's reset. That's a cognitive reset. And it's often a physical step back, pause. You suddenly find yourself on the side of the road and it's a multi-system trauma patient. And you, you suddenly realize like, oh, we've been here a while and we're splinting a tib-fib, we need to go, right? You suddenly realize, like, this call is not going the direction I want it to go. You can do a hard stop, and you can be out loud. You can say this to your team. 
All right, everybody stop. I want to focus on airway. Once we get them packaged, the next thing is let's go. Okay, reprioritize. <clears throat> Sometimes this is used when it's obvious like that, when things are obviously de derailed. Okay, it's real obvious to everyone. We need a reset. But sometimes we are derailed and we don't know it. It's more subtle than that. And that's, that's because you're caught up in the moment. You're having trouble with, with kind of some clinical reasoning. And if I'm going to talk about clinical reasoning, if I'm going to talk about decision making, I have to bring this into the talk. Um, one, of the, one of the great thinkers is a gentleman named Daniel Kahneman. He's a Nobel Prize winner for this dual processing theory. And he basically says that when, people, when humans are thinking, when they're thinking through a problem, when they're trying to make decisions, they're usually in one of two modes. <clears throat> he got really creative when he named them. One is system one and one is system two. System one is automatic. It's based on patterns. It is really, really rapid. But often, this is where our cognitive biases are, or this is where our mental shortcuts that have some flaw to them exist. And we spend 95% of our day in system one. That's how, otherwise, if you were only in system two all, all day, you would never leave the house. Like, you couldn't get things done. System one is, is a very, very quick way of processing information. And on calls, because of the wicked nature of, of emergency medicine, and, and he says this in his papers, uh, or, sorry, Pat Crosskey says that we will default to system one as the wicked rises, okay? Because we just, the, the ability to, to use your rational cognition, your analytical cognition, drops in those wicked calls. And so we default to system one that's easier and automatic, and we just trust these kind of automatic reflexes that we have to things. And so that's why you have to build in the pause play on every call. It is worth the 20 seconds to step back and just ask yourself and your team, right, pause, Am I missing anything here? What you are doing is you are allowing system two thinking to modulate system one thinking because you will likely be in system one, making decisions, making decisions, things are moving along. You have to build in this cognitive pause play to every call to check your own thinking. And I've seen the benefits of this when we do megacodes with our students. The last semester we put them through high stress High intensity, not only are they stressful scenarios, they're also for a grade, so that ramps up some anxiety too, and they have to, they have to pass. They go through the scenario, they go through the scenario, and at the end we always ask two questions. How'd it go? So we can hear kind of their thought process. But the second one, the second question is just a really simple, well, what was your differential here? What was your clinical impression? What disease process were you treating? And that question switches them from when they've been in system one, it's an immediate, System two question, what, what was your analysis here? What's your rational thought process? And that reflection, and it doesn't take them long, 20 seconds, they'll say, I was, I was treating PE because I saw this shortness of breath, and oh, but wait, why, why did they have a temp? And they start reflecting on all the data in a new way, in a system two way. Some people are even resistant to call system one thinking thinking at all. It's, it's almost so automatic. It's, it's subconscious. The next skill is one not to do on a call, but instead to do prior to a call. Okay, this is the work that you can do up front to prepare yourself for wicked environments. 
This is to automate your psychomotor skills. This is muscle memory. And it's, it's not useful for all things, but there are a few things that we do that you can count on muscle memory to get you through. Okay, think of starting an IV, think of setting up CPAPs, equipment setup. How to automate a skill. Okay, how to get there. How to get that muscle memory. So no matter what's going on around you, your hands are going to do the thing. There's four steps. The first is, and it's, it's a little bit of an arduous process. The first thing to do is to develop what's called a task analysis. And really this is designed for the new learner. Uh, but depending on your habits, it may be good to go back and think about from the very beginning, talk to an expert in, um, let's do a surgical airway. Talk to an expert in surgical airway and say, will you write me one to two, three pages of every single step of this skill? I want, and it, it's slow, it's ridiculous. It's almost painful how slow it is. In our task analyses, we have one for starting an IV, and there's a step that says put the bevel up. Okay, this is how, this is how specific we get. And you go through these steps one at a time. Someone reads you the step, you do it. Someone reads you the next step, you do it. Someone reads you the next step, you do it. It's not in real time. It's very slow. In that moment, you are laying down the neural network for all this muscle memory later. Okay? So doing it properly at the very beginning is, is important. Because you guys have heard, practice doesn't make perfect, practice makes permanent, right? However you're doing this is how you will do it, particularly when things get wicked. So you get the task analysis, you make sure you have somebody there with you to stop you should you be getting off track, okay? Because you're laying down the neural network. You don't want to repeat it 20 times and have laid down the wrong, the wrong script. Once you reach competence, once you're good at it, that's where most people stop. At the end of number two is where most people stop. They get checked off, yep, you're good. You know how to set up the CPAP? Good, right? But we're in the lab, we're just, all the lights are on. It's nine in the morning, we're rested. It works great there. That's where most of us stop. My challenge to you, and trying to sell you on this idea of muscle memory, is if you're finding yourself in wicked calls and things are fumbly, my challenge to you is do this work. Do the next three steps. Or sorry, excuse me, the next steps, three and four. The next two steps. Go beyond competence and do something called overlearning. Overlearning is practicing a skill after you're competent. You're already good at it. And so it's really hard to stay motivated to keep doing it because you think I got it, right, moving on. Be motivated by knowing that in the heat of the moment, in the heat of the wicked, this will be one less thing you have to think about. So what is overlearning? Overlearning is quite simply repetitions. Quite simply repetitions, doing it correctly over and over. And there are two ways to do reps. One, in the lab, you've probably done that a lot. You've got your mannequins, low fidelity mannequins, one skill at a time. There's another place to practice, and that's in your mind simulator. You can, with your eyes closed, walk through every single step of a skill, and we're gonna talk about visualization here in a bit. The fourth step to where you really get people automated is to put them under a little bit of stress. Change up the environment a little bit. And if, you, if you're teaching, you can, you, should, you can do this. Change up the environment just a little bit. Introduce an actor that's a little distressed and you're, you have to set up the CPAP and someone's talking in my ear. Maybe an, an over-talkative um, over parent, right? Introduce a little bit of stress. This is called stress exposure and we're gonna talk about stress inoculation here in a bit.
There is one warning about overlearning. There is a warning. Whatever you program, if you really do it right, if you do number three right, it's going to come back out. I, can, I have examples, so many examples in the lab. We practice overlearn, overlearn, then we get to the skills testing and we ramp up the wicket a little bit, right? We reduce their time. It's for a grade. Here, here's an here's a example offhand. Um, easy I.O., right? We do the easy I.O. We don't sharp our, our easy I.O.s because we reuse the needles because it's the classroom over and over. And, and, but we, we teach them, hey, mimic putting it up in the sharps container, maybe lay it on top of the sharps container. But some of them practice, they just put it on the table. And they think, oh, during the test, I'm going to say I would sharps it, right? It doesn't play out like that. We've programmed them so well. They're like a computer. We put it in, and out it comes. Under a little bit of pressure, that, that easy I.O. needle just goes to the table. Okay, that happens um, a lot. In a, in a book, this is a really tragic but interesting story, and in a book called On Combat, Lieutenant uh, Dave Grossman wrote a book called On Combat, and he recounts a story that was told to him by law enforcement where for the longest people that, uh, this was years ago when pe people used revolvers, they would go to the shooting range, they thought they were overlearning, they're getting their practice, but they were practicing something where they would shoot and then instead of just dropping their um, shells to the ground because they didn't want to create a, a big pile of trash, they would just dump it in their hand and put it in their pocket. Some of these police officers were found after live fire in real events with brass, with, with the shells in their pockets from real, during real calls. So what had happened is that it was just a thing. It was just muscle memory. Someone's shooting at me. I'm shooting back. And they were dumping their shells and putting it into their pocket because they had overlearned that. So be very, very careful what you train. What you train will come out on the wicked calls. Uh, this is a kicker. He is preparing to kick his field goal, and he's basically visualizing where he wants the ball to go. You could do this, too, um, in your mind simulator. We were talking about practicing skills in, I think it was in the, the 90s, we have functional MRIs where we would take a person, not we, not me at all, but scientists would take a person and they would have them do a skill in actuality, put them under the fMRI scanner, see which parts of the brain lit up, and then they would take that person and say, okay, now just sit here, close your eyes and visualize doing that thing, okay, not, not actually performing it. And very similar parts of the brain lit up during those fMRI scans as when they were actually doing it versus visualizing doing it. So it's worth the repetitions of visualizing going through these psychomotor skills. Michael Phelps did this tirelessly. I've heard that he practiced 365 days a year. Um, this was from an interview from his coach. Some of his practice was just sitting still and visualizing swims. Have y'all heard this about him? He will, he will visualize every single stroke of a race. And he, he, he visualizes it two ways. The first is he'll visualize it going well, the way he wants it to go. Right? And that's positive visualization, visualization, good, we're going, we're going. But then he also said he created some mental videos of when something got wrong. For example, his goggles might fog up or maybe his shoulder starts hurting during the race. 
and he would create those mental videos. And then this happened in 2008 in the Olympics. His goggles fell off. It was a 200-yard uh, race, and his goggles fell off. And he swam that race, 175 yards. He swam that race blind. And he got out of the pool, and he says, yeah, I'd already swam that race. I'd already swam that race 200 times, visualizing that very scenario. I already had the tape. I, I just plugged it right in. I, as soon as they, they came off, I just plugged in the tape, and off we went. Okay, you can, you can do this too. Create mental videos. That's anecdotal. That's just Michael Phelps talking. There's also studies uh, that support this. There's a randomized control trial where they had surgeons um, learn a new skill. Some would practice uh, just in the lab with some type of mannequin. The others would just visualize doing the skill. And this is, again, after competence. Okay, they have to, you have to already be good at it okay, and then visualize being good at it. And what, what they found in this randomized controlled trial is they would take the, the surgeons and they used virtual reality. And I'm not sure what metric they used, but uh, the, the people that per, just visualized doing the skill performed as well as people uh, practicing this skill on low fidelity mannequins. The next topic is uh, everybody's hot about talking about stress inoculation. Have y'all heard of stress inoculation? Cool, then I have a lot to share. Everyone is excited about stress inoculation. It is what it sounds like. We're trying through practice in scenarios, we're trying to create a stress immune system, so to speak. We're trying to put people in scenarios, ramp up the stress a little bit, so they can start practicing these skills of breathing, self-talk, visualization, in the hopes of inoculating the person to that stress response. Okay? They learn the tools to decrease their arousal. If you would like to do these sims, and some of you may be doing it without really uh, calling it stress inoculation, right? If you're an educator, you're putting your students through tough scenarios or your cadets through tough scenarios, and you're throwing them some curveballs, that's stress inoculation. If you really want to get the most bang for your buck from this, from, from your stress inoculation, from tough scenarios, from your hard simulations that you're putting people through, the first thing to do is to explain to them what the stress response is. And most, most EMTs, medics, they know the stress response pretty well. They know it from pathophys and then their own stress response. But make sure you tell them, hey, here are all the symptoms that go along with stress. You, you may not be able to hear very well during this. Or your field of vision, you may notice this. Or you may get this time distortion. Tell them what to expect. And tell them it's universal. It's a universal human experience. It's normal. They're, they're, uh, I don't like to speak in like absolutes, but it would be hard to find a human that doesn't respond to stress with those, those symptoms. You're not, bro you're not broken by having this. You're actually perfectly programmed by those 200,000 years we talked about. So explain the stress response and then teach them the coping skills. Tell them, you know, Michael Laurie is talking about this square breathing. Let's practice that. And then in the simulation, and this is going to sound weird to you, but in the simulation, tell them exactly what you're going to do. Tell them, we're going to go through this scenario. All I want you to do is put a CPAP on, and while you're doing it, someone's going to come in, and they're going to be really upset. And you think, well, I don't want to, I don't want to tell them what the curveball is. It's okay. They're still going to feel the stress. And telling them what's going to happen, you're on the same team. We're working towards the same goal. And that's what you're practicing is not putting on CPAP. What they're practicing is... <sighs> 
Okay, they're practicing these stress arousal techniques. And you slowly, <laughs> there are very few words on this slide because I want you to appreciate all of them. Slowly increase the stress, putting them in the worst of all scenarios, the most wicked scenario you can dream up at the beginning teaches them very, very little. It teaches them that we crumble under stress. That's what happens to we, we humans. So slowly increase their exposure over time. One day, start with one distractor, then introduce another and another and build on that. That's stress inoculation. This is not a technique to control your uh, stress response. What I'm going to talk about next is what you can do to basically give yourself the sense that you have more resources uh, than you think you do. So you walk into a call. You walk into a call. The human brain has a limited cognitive ability. We know this. It's called your working memory. Working memory is similar to short-term memory. Short-term memory is if I just list it off like seven things and you've got to remember them. Working memory is a little different. I'm going to give you these seven things and you've got to kind of move them around and play with them and solve something about them. That's working memory. And we know from labs, from psychology labs, we know that the human brain can only hold about seven plus or minus two units of information at a time. That's it. Seven plus, plus, plus or minus two. Again, not it's not that you are unintelligent, it's that you are human. It's an operating feature of our brain. And so knowing that we have those limits and knowing that we're we could potentially call this a threat if we start realizing we're in over our heads, what's recommended is just offload some of that. So I've got these seven pieces of information. I'm going to take one of those and put it on a checklist. Or I'm going to take one of those and put it in a reference card. Or I'm going to write that one down. Or I'm going, to have, I'm going to delegate and tell my partner to remember that one. That's called cognitive offloading. In experiments in psychology labs, they've put people under this stress where they will give them all this info, and they keep giving them info. And this is cognitive load. They keep saying, hey, I'm going to give you this info, info, info. Hold on to this. Don't forget. Remember this. And what happens is they watch the pupils, and the pupils get big. The more cognitive load they put on the person just sitting in a chair in a little lab, the pupils get big. And you guys know what that means. Big pupils mean stressed. Okay, so having too much cognitive load on you is stressful. And there are two categories of, of cognitive load. There's basically intrinsic load and extrinsic load. Intrinsic just means how hard is this, this thing. It's, it's the idea that 3 plus 3 is easier, intrinsically easier than 42 plus 38. That's intrinsic load. And then there's extrinsic load, which is unnecessary distractions. It's all this load of information that's usually coming from the outside, load of information that you're just kind of having to sift through. The idea is to manage your intrinsic load and reduce the extrinsic load. The idea is to manage the intrinsic load and reduce the extrinsic load. So let's talk about how to do that. The intrinsic load, how hard something is, some of it we can just dump to a checklist. And the idea of a checklist came to us, you guys hopefully have heard of a gentleman named Atul Gawande. He tried, he is still trying very hard to bring checklists uh, from the aviation industry to medicine uh, in the interest of freeing up this cognitive load. And his book was, 
I think published it maybe 10 years ago, and we're still finally just starting to get this cultural shift of using checklists, of people saying, yep, I don't have to know everything in every moment. Some of it I can pull out in a little piece of, a little card. No shame, okay? It's just dumping it off so you can free up your mind to do other tasks. Another thing to do is to automate the skills. If I could show you a student at our, in our program, their very first IV, IV stick, even on the mannequin, they are thinking really hard about every little step. So the further down the line you can get of automating these skills, the less you have to think. The next thing to do to manage intrinsic load is if-then statements or if-then plans. And some people are resistant to this idea that I'm about to say. The idea is, because it sounds a little algorithmic, Okay, we, we're not, we don't follow algorithms. We, we uh, make, look at the full clinical picture and use judgment. But I'm going to argue that there, there are a few if-then statements that you can inject into your calls that when that, that situation, that if situation pops up, you don't have to think it through. You said, yep, I already planned on this one. If that was going to happen, then I was going to do this. The perfect one. Uh, the one you maybe have um, heard before is if I can't oxygenate and if I can't ventilate this patient through any, any mean, then I'm going to do a surgical airway. And deciding to do a surgical airway can be a tough decision. So if you have that planned out, if you know, yep, I already had this plan, it will make that decision much easier in the moment. How to reduce the extrinsic load. First, minimize interruptions. And I bet you guys are already doing this on your calls. Blaring TV, you turn it off. Crying baby, not, that's not your patient, maybe take them in another room. Okay? You, already, you already have worked towards minimizing interruptions. And the great thing about being an EMS is we usually, usually only have one patient at a time. So um, it, it's, we don't get interrupted by other patients. Delete negative self-talk. <laughs> This one can be tough, but it is extraneous. It is not, thinking about the last time you had that call and it went poorly in that moment of the new call is not helpful. And if you can, when you notice that you're doing it, just delete it. I think of an intubation I, I did. It was the call after I had had a difficult intubation. The next call, I remember myself talk on that, that next call. It wasn't positive. It wasn't, I wasn't cheering myself on. I was worried. I kept saying, please don't miss this like the last time. Right? That is negative, unproductive self-talk, so delete that if you can notice that you're doing it. The last piece is something that I hope I'm bringing um, to you guys. Hopefully, I feel like this is a kind of a more newer topic, and that, that is the idea of bringing better design of our equipment, of our uh, products, better product design to minimize uh, the extrinsic load. This is a, a needle that we use at our college what side do you think that you, it has the flap where you open it? Now, some of you just bust the needle open through the paper, but if you, did, if you couldn't do that, which side do you think has the flap? Uh, left or right? Yay, right? It looks like that, right? Of course, that looks like beautiful design, like it's telling me, open here. No, it's the other side. Uh, see that little thing there? There's a flap on the other side of the, the plastic. And I called this manufacturer because our students were having so much trouble with this. I called them. There's a phone number on here. <laughs> I called them and I said, um, you know, I'm working with novices. And it's kind of a neat situation because we're kind of like testing your product for you. Um, people that haven't familiarized themselves with the equipment yet. 
Um, so you're really getting to see like how your product design is working. And I've got hundreds of students, when I put them under just a little bit of stress in a testing environment, they're all trying to open this, this pink end. Because it looks like it wants to open right there. It really does. This is great design if that's where you open it. Humans love color. We love, when we're stressed, stressed reading, reading is not what we want to do. We want to look at shapes and colors to figure out how to, to use this uh, package. And the response, the response was not, not great, but it's okay, because who knows who I was talking to. I wasn't talking to the designer, I know that. Their response was, okay, well, we're going to put a little, um, we're going to put a little word over here that says open here. I said, okay, well, come right out on the ambulance with some of these medics. They're not, they're not looking at it like this. And, and I said that. I said, okay, well, we're, we're under stress in emergency medicine. We're not really reading or looking for those types of instructions. And he said, okay, well, I'll put a little triangle there. And that's actually kind of good. There's a triangle that shows this is where it opens. Okay? But this is the crux of the matter. This is what we're dealing with. And the, if you can communicate these things to the product, the product manufacturers, if we can say, like, this is, this is what we need, an emergency medicine, this works great. And for someone who's, you know, just giving uh, flu shots, that works great. But for us, we need things that are really, really obvious. And the man that's going to bring design to medicine in the way that Atul Gawande brought checklists to medicine, there's, there's a gentleman named Don Norman. He's the one, if we can listen to the things he's saying, he's the one that's going to bring enhanced design to medicine. Because he says that human error is, is usually, if you really get to the root cause analysis, if you really get to why someone failed on these wicked calls, what many people might love to call just human error, it turns out that if we really looked at things, sometimes it's design error. Some designs invite error. Some designs invite you to make the wrong decision. And then some designs are just kind of neutral and they don't really encourage peak performance. And then there's some stuff that's just flawless. It's like this is encouraging the human to perform perfectly. Why not design everything to increase our chances of getting it right? We're under this cognitive load. We're, we were in the wicked environment. Why not design every single piece of equipment to increase our chances of getting it right? Quick, pass me the pepper. I know which one you picked. I already know. These are th three different ways to design salt and pepper shake shakers. And I get that you didn't come to an EMS conference to talk about salt and pepper shakers, but this is design. This, this is, we're working under we, speed, time-restricted conditions. We, things need to be obvious to us. So you look at A. There, I'm sure there's some custom about which one has the three holes and which one has the two holes. I don't know which one that is. To figure it out, what I would do would do this. I would pour it in my hand and slowly make this decision maybe error the first time. Look at B. Okay, now we've got words on here. Good. We've got one that's salt and one that's pepper. And if I pick the wrong one later, someone's going to come along and say to me, human error, you picked the wrong one. It's clear clearly labeled. Okay, Te technically right. Technically right. I should have slowed down and read more, close read more closely. You give me C, I will get it right 100% of the time. Give me the design of C, of the salt and pepper shaker, where I can 
easily, with good design, make the right decision and decrease cognitive load. That's, that's how we put design into medicine. So when things get wicked, I'm going to put you on a wicked call. Here we go. First of all, before we go on this call, at some point in your training, hopefully you've automated your skills. Right? We've got those tools that we're just going to pull out when the time, time, time comes. Muscle memory, it's going to be there. It's our friend. We're going to have mental rehearsal. We're going to have played out some scenarios with our partner. We're like, okay, for uh, chest pain calls, you're going to start here, I'm going to start here. Okay, this mental rehearsal. We're going to go through some inoculation, stress inoculation exercises. So I'm ready when the person comes in and they're, you know, over-talking to me or uh, we're outside and there's low lighting. And then I'm going to work really hard in the medical community to standardize the products that are on my ambulance. And if nothing else, I'm familiarizing myself with the equipment I have. I know exactly where it is. I know exactly how it fits together. That's, that's the front work. Okay, but now you get dispatched to a drowning. You're dispatched to a drowning. Teenager. Diving accident. Lots of people there. It's summer. Big crowd. When you hear that dispatch info, the first thing you do, please, the first thing I want you to do, say something to yourself. So that wicked doesn't wash over you. Say to yourself, I'm ready. Let's go. Okay, I'm ready. I've, I prepared for drownings. We have the tools for that. Some mantra, as you're getting in the truck, I'm ready for that. On the way to the call, doing some breathing, getting on a shared mental model with your partner, talking about, you know, visualizing how this call might go. Okay, so first the talk as you're getting in the truck is like a, a affirmation, I'm ready. Then the talk on the way to the call can be instructive. Give yourself some steps. Once you get on the scene, the foot comes out, hits the ground. I'm ready. What do we got? And then you start working the problem. And that's actually where some of the relief comes. You start working the problem and you start realizing, I do have the tools to, to manage this. But then things might get weird. Okay, not a standard drowning. High emotions. It wasn't the way you exactly visualized. Some kink in the call, right? That's when you count on things like breathing. That's when you count on this pause play feature where you can take a step back and say, all right, let's reset. Team, what, what am I missing? The pause play feature. Now it's time to do a skill. Okay, this is a drowning patient. It's time to intubate. Or it's time to put in a King LT. Or it's time to, to BVM. You can trust that the prep work you've done, you've automated the skill. Right before you go in to intubate, you can give yourself some visualization. Imagine how it's going to go. Some, we're setting up the equipment. And you can use instructive tools like, I've prepared for this. Open the mouth, uvula, epiglottis, cords. That's all before you've even done it. But then the intubation doesn't go well. Maybe when they, it was a diving accident, so they've um, crushed their trachea. There's some trauma. You can't get them tubed. You're ventilating. Nothing's going in. The sats are low. You can't oxygenate 
You can't ventilate. Okay, I have a script for this, an if-then statement for this. And the call keeps moving forward from there. These are some books I use to, to read about stress. Uh, they're um, books that you might enjoy, in particular the one on the top. It's called Deep Survival by Lawrence Gonzalez. And he writes, he's interviewed people who survived extreme environments. And he talks to them about their experience and what he, his thesis and what he found out is that people that had good, positive self-talk could kind of keep them, their arousal low so they could think clearly in the environments uh, did better. At first, I thought people either had it or they didn't when they got to paramedic school. I thought they arrived to us either ready to handle stress or not ready to handle stress. And I was like, I was right. Some of them arrived not ready. Some of them arrived ready because probably because a coach had taught them these skills. So I hope what you'll take from the talk, what I took from Michael Loria's video, Cognitive Paths Through Chaos, is that these are teachable, learnable skills. Thanks for being here. I enjoyed y'all. Thanks for being here. If you enjoyed this episode and want to know more about the studies I referenced, check out the show notes at medicmindset.com. Hey, good morning. How's it going? Uh, yeah, it's okay. All right, good. Do your thing. <laughs> I'm going to do my thing. It's going to be average. It's going to be average. It's going to be okay. Good.